We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished players, authors, content creators, and improvers about their lives, their careers, and about ways that you might be able to improve your own chess game. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We are joined by a return guest this week, although, again, it's been five years since I've talked with him. He is a beloved commentator, a YouTube creator, a Twitch streamer, an author, and a prolific chessable course creator, often collaborating with I am Richard Palliser. He's uh, worked on the Iron English, Grandmaster Gambits, The Art of Attack in Chess, and I believe most recently, the British Grand Prix Sicilian. He's known to many, of course, as the Ginger GM. He recently launched a site called G-Chess that we'll be discussing. And we're excited to welcome him back to the show. Simon Williams, how are you, sir? Hi, Ben. I'm I'm very good, thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be on your extremely popular chess podcast. So uh, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we've come a long way since we chatted in uh, January and uh, in January of 2017, uh, both of us, hopefully. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's nice. It's been a, it's always interesting in the chess world journeys that people make right <laughs> so, yeah, yeah yeah it is i mean it's it's a game of survival don't don't get checkmated and, uh, <laughs> and uh, hope for hope for the best um 
And I actually, I kind of wanted to pick it up by kind of talking about some of our shared experience, which of course we talked about in length. Um, in our first interview, uh, we met at the Reykjavik Open in what I believe was uh, 2006. Um, and we don't need to rehash that, but I did see that you're you're going to the Reykjavik Open. You tweeted that you'll be playing in this of this, of course, landmark tournament in Iceland from April 6th to April 12th. So I thought that would be a good opportunity to talk about your game a little bit, Simon, because obviously you're making so much content um, for all you know for your for your loyal audience and putting out so much great stuff. But every once in a while, you like to dust off the chess pieces. So how, how does a decision like that come to be? And then dare I ask, Simon, like if anything goes into preparation and stuff like that when you decide you're going to compete? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I uh, at the end of the day, I'm a chess player. That's what I started out being, playing chess, love playing chess. And that's what I love doing. I love playing chess, you know, competing in tournaments, playing other people and uh uh, you know, so it's lovely to be have the opportunity to still do that. Um, not as easy as maybe it used to be because, uh, you know, you get older, things get tougher and more young people come along. But uh, I, I love the competition. I love the aspect of, you know, just fighting over the board at a longer time control as well. We all play so much blitz chess now. It's nice to actually have one game a day or two games a day where you can get really absorbed um, in in the process or, or you know how, how the game works and uh, Reykjavik seemed like a, a great place to play um, I love Reykjavik I'd highly recommend it to anyone out there who wants to play a tournament doesn't matter what strength uh, you are just you know give it a go don't be scared um, it's got a very wide range so even if you're low rated you can play and even if you score zero it really doesn't matter that I scored zero all the time when I started playing <laughs> still do hopefully not in Reykjavik but <laughs> but it's it, it's great I mean it's um, obviously a little bit pricey in Iceland but it's it's beautiful to, you know beautiful scenery lovely place um, the the venue is the Harper concert hall uh, overlooking the the harbour and it's 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 beautiful you can play a game of chess and look out uh, to see if you're lucky see the northern lights and uh, an amazing venue and, and also just the Icelandic people and you know Scandinavian people in general I, I just have an affinity for I, I, they've always been very friendly towards me nothing to do with my ginger beard probably um <laughs> so maybe you know but it, it, you know I can't I can't say enough good things about it so I'm very much looking forward to going back and playing um I mean your comment about you know my preparation and stuff it, it certainly gets a bit harder I mean I don't think I've really ever planned much in my life you sort of fall into things and when we met it was similar I don't think any of us really knew what we were doing even then and of course you know, not. <laughs> we were just getting on with life you know and yeah. um you know I like I say I was played and taught then you know media came along and I started getting involved with, you know, videos and streaming and commentary and everything I'm doing now. And, um, yeah, you know, to be honest, it, it, it paid, it paid well and it, it was something I really enjoyed doing. And it was also, I thought the best way for me, uh, to pass on my knowledge and my love of the game to other people, uh, which I think is important to share, share that. So that's kind of taken over as, you know, the way that pays my rent and what I, and, and I, I like doing it, but playing chess is, my love that's that's what I like to do will I have time to do any preparation well it's you know all the courses I create help because I pretty much play everything that I've created you know at times and places but for a big tournament like this I I would like to think I'll have time to prepare 
an opening, a Pacific opening that will take my opponents by surprise. And I'm sort of aiming to do an hour a day, you know, for at least a couple of weeks. Whether that will happen or not, I'll tell you right. after Reykjavik. <laughs> so or or don't tell us. <laughs> yeah, you'll probably find out by the way I play. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. it's, yeah. Well, I mean, like you say, it's fun. It's fun that you're getting back out there and, and your enthusiasm for chess is, I think, part of the reason you found such a, such a big audience. Um, you, you can't fake that. And uh, you're between your chess style and all the original openings that you find and, and your obvious uh, enthusiasm for chess. It's um, no surprise to me that, that you've had the success you've had. And, and hearing you talk about how at the end of the day, your chess player does, does take me back to, to when we met in 2006, because it seems like it was such a different world then. I mean, the the chess internet was tiny, you know. And if you if you were out there competing, it was it was even more so than now. I feel like it had to be for the love of the game. And at that time, you were an IM, um, strong IM, you know, working on the GM title, but you hadn't earned it yet. And I was, you know, we've been talking a lot about titles here on the podcast lately. Last year, when I interviewed Ben Feingold, he he broke down his chase for. The GM title, which it turned out wasn't really a chase. He just said he just loved chess and played and uh, got good enough and what earned the title. But of course, I've interviewed Lawrence Trent and um, Sean Nagel and more recently some uh, masters trying to earn the IM title. But I'm curious, Simon, how much design went into to your earning the GM title, which based on what you've said about how you plan your life, I, I have an inkling, but, but let's kick it <laughs> over to you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I I don't know if I've really planned anything ever, <laughs> which is, you know, I, I I don't. I mean, you have goals in life, and it's good to try to have healthy goals. Um, but you know, you you should do the things you enjoy doing in life. That's obviously clear. And uh, I've been very lucky to enjoy, you know, being able to enjoy chess and and always being able to enjoy playing. Uh, obviously, the painful losses uh, are separate to that. But um, I mean, for me, I suppose my journey was uh, um, um, my dad played a lot. I, I got quite strong when I was young, um, became an international master. I can't even remember the age, probably around 16, 17, something like that. I um, went to university, um, went a bit astray, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> we won't go into too many details there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but around that period of early 20s, um, uh, you know, uh, I spent then five years sort of finishing off university, three-year course down in Brighton area. Um, <laughs> got delayed. <laughs> I worked in a call centre uh, for a year. Oh, wow. On minimum, on minimum wage. Wow. <laughs> so I did, did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I did a whole year. Um, pho- oh, God, it was horrible. Phoning up people, you know, <laughs> trying to get them to subscribe to a magazine. Um, and, you know, after that, after university in Brighton, I, you know, I got into teaching at schools, which was a bit more stable income. And but always played. I always played. So if I, you know, the good thing about when I was an international master, even though I had no money, uh, you normally get your, you know, help with your expenses. So I had the opportunity to go and I'd go to Iceland, and I, I wouldn't have to pay for it myself, which really helped me to to go and play and, and enjoy that experience. And and I really around my twenties, you know, I, I was able to play a bit more, um, and I just really tried to play as many competitions where the, the grandmaster title was available. And uh, it just it just came really. I mean, I got a couple of norms in a couple of tournaments back to back. Um, I think it was the Island Man competition, a very strong one, or maybe the, I can't even see. I can't even remember now, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> but it came it came in that period of just playing a lot, enjoy playing, and enjoy studying the game. And 
what I found, and of course it was a different world, as you mentioned, it was the thing that really helped me was preparation at tournaments. So when you, this is one thing that people at home maybe have not experienced. And if you go to a tournament like Reykjavik or any of these international tournaments, the game generally starts, I don't know, like they say 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. And the routine will be, you know, you can do two, three hours preparation in the morning for your opponent, especially nowadays with how strong computers are. And doing that on a regular basis, you know, over the period of a year or two, um, which I know not everyone's able to do, but just preparing for your opponent and then going into the battle and trying to use those openings really helped me. Even if I didn't get the opening in the game, that information would be stored there for, for something else. And I build this up, uh, this information up on, you know, save it and hopefully store it inside my mind. But as you say, but it was a complete didn't weld. Uh, you didn't, you know, just if uh, you know, why didn't someone tell me about Bitcoin in two thousand and six yeah, or something? Nice. <laughs> Forget yeah. about the chess. Yeah. <laughs> just, just tell me about Bitcoin, and then I will. <laughs> you know, I, I won't do any coaching then. <laughs> so, uh-huh. where, what year did Bitcoin come out? It was around. I don't know. Or maybe it's I, a bit too young. Is it? Uh, that, I don't yeah, know. I just, it was. A, I'm not a big expert, yeah. but no, yeah, sure. I think it was a handful of years later. But still, was, yeah. 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 <laughs> but it, but it was crazy. I mean, the preparation was actually, funnily enough, still similar that you go there with your laptop, you'd search for your opponent, you'd pair for your opponent. Um, preparation away from the tournament is now changed a lot with chessable and other great things. Uh, um, but the whole media thing, it just wasn't there. You couldn't, I mean, imagine that. You couldn't watch chess online. And you yeah. can watch so much online now. It's everywhere. There's tournaments. I mean, even since I've been streaming, I turn on, I go onto Twitch and there's like now like 40 people streaming chess. It's crazy. This yeah, is and so many of them are amazing. You, you just yes. can't watch it all. It's, it's so many great presenters. Yeah, it's crazy. It's brilliant. I mean, I think we're really spoiled now. I mean, you've got presenters for everyone. I mean, understandably, not everyone will enjoy my presentation. You know, that's <laughs> very understandable, um, But which is good. But then if you don't like my presentation, there's someone else who does the kind of presentation you do like and vice versa. So whatever kind of commentary you like is basically out there nowadays which is which is brilliant as a chess player yeah i feel the same way about 90 minutes of audio only chess talk i I understand it's not for everyone that's okay you know (laughs) (laughs) as long as some people are as long as people are listening i'm happy to do it but but so so it sounds like you got the title, Simon, um, mainly similar to what Ben Feingold said. I mean, he... Uh, me, me, and ben, me and Ben are brothers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you guys have had some rivalries or faux rivalries online. It's yeah. never never clear <laughs> never clear when the line has been crossed. But but I know that uh, you guys, um, I'd say you have some, some fans in common, most likely. But in any event, would you say... so? I know you were playing a lot of events then you were an active player, but were you like specifically training for the GM title or was it just like you were just so in chess and you figured yeah. it would come? Well, I, I definitely wanted to become grandmaster. I mean, when I say I didn't really knew where I was going or, or whatnot, I, I think having goals, having aims is very important. And uh, as I got the international master title quite young, the grandmaster title was, you know, the ultimate ultimate aim and uh, working towards that and trying to get that certainly was a big motivation you know without that maybe I would have lost a bit of interest but you know you want to achieve you want to achieve that and have that title for life and um, you know by getting by by working towards that that certainly helped me uh, kept me motivated I'd say in a more way and I suppose for anyone else watching maybe maybe it's a great idea to have uh, some 
idea in mind of what you're trying to achieve when you're doing chess. But I would also like to warn people not to get too carried away with ELO and things yeah. like this. There's so many people who are like, I need to get to this ELO. I, I need to do this. You're going to have really bad runs. And I often found when I had dumps in ELO rating, it was actually when I felt I was playing best and it was just experimenting, uh, trying out new styles. And you're bound to dipping strength when you experiment. But in the long run, it's a very healthy process to do. So don't get too worried if things go down in the short term. They should improve in the long term, um, I think, yeah. Yeah, well, it's good that you made it because Ginger I am just doesn't sound as good. <laughs> no, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I have to um, keep the branding going. <laughs> exactly. So uh, obviously you were playing a ton, and obviously you mentioned you got the I am title quite young. Um, so again, you were kind of knocking on the door anyway. But at that time, aside from playing a ton and going over the games, was there any sort of training you were doing, Simon? Um, well, I, I, I never had a coach as such. Um well, my dad was a, a strong player, so he taught me the openings I, I still really play now. Um, the one, the one thing I would do, um, uh, and I think you know the, the bit of advice I, I give, maybe it's changed a bit now, but I think I would have quite a short number of openings that I play. I think that has changed now because preparation is more important. But I don't think you can learn all openings under the sun, and I also feel don't get too carried away with openings you know it's like it's so easy to obsess over them and they're important but they're really important to give you positions that you enjoy playing so that even if they're supposed to be a bit dubious it really doesn't matter just just get in positions you enjoy playing and the more you enjoy the game the more you're going to get better in the middle game and ending so so having an idea of what openings i wanted to play um was certainly there that was important i would um try to look at tactics um, a bit, but it was really anything I did with chess was stuff I enjoyed. And I think that's the key thing. Just do things you enjoy. Don't force yourself. If you think, oh, I need to work at endings, but you hate working at endings, don't do it. It's as simple as that because you're not going to learn anything. As long as you do things you enjoy, you're just going to get better. Um, but tactics, doing tactic puzzles, I found very useful as well. Obviously, in my days, there were only books that you could yeah. do tactics from. It wasn't like all the apps you can get. But I found that extremely, um, extremely useful uh, as well. So tactics, openings, not getting too despondent when things didn't go my way. And obviously learning from the game, as I was playing so much, you lose a game, don't lose the same way twice. This is so important. This is probably the most important thing. You know, like it's that saying, if you make a mistake in life, it's fine. You can be fooled once, but you shouldn't be fooled twice because then you are a fool. So, you know, um, I probably still do that nowadays, I'll be honest, but I try not to. <laughs> right. you know, but yeah, I try not to. So if you do lose a bad game or something goes wrong, why? And, you know, just, just work on that and you will improve. Yeah, good advice. And hearing you discuss your sort of longtime affinity with uh, certain openings, actually, we have a very related question from a uh, Patreon supporter of the pod, uh, Bruno Johnson. So, Bruno writes in and he says he he ended up picking the Iron English and Classical Dutch as his main openings, mainly to go in more unknown territories, but also because if he has to learn some openings, might as well have some fun with the Ginger GM. So he'd like to know how you came to pick those openings in particular when you were not old enough to grow your trademark beard. So were, <laughs> so were those also passed on from your dad, Simon? Yeah, they were. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's as simple as that. My dad played the Botvinnik uh, Iron English and the Classical Dutch. And that was it. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's as simple as that. He, you know, funnily enough, though, if you think about where he learned them from, um, 
you know, it's the Dutch is considered quite dubious by a number of people now, and the English people don't like playing because so they consider it boring. But um, he he actually picked these openings up from the likes of Botvinnik, who played the Dutch, the classical Dutch, uh, Macau Tau, Alakine, uh, Aliekin, and the English as well. So he, he got he got them from a very good basis, and and that's how I learned them. I just learned pick them up from my dad and develop them as much as I could. Uh, I found them interesting and I tried to bring some of my own ideas into the openings as, as I developed them and, you know, as a chess player. Yeah. I, I remember, I mean, obviously I've been, I've been aware of your chess for, since we met in 2006 and it, it was very clear, like just seeing you go over games and, you know, do, do a, a postmortem over a pint or whatever it may be that you have this attacking style. So I remember being surprised that you were an English player because that's not what I associated it with. Yeah, the, the English might be a bit strange. I mean, I, I have sort of moved on. Uh, I moved on sort of on the way, you know, to becoming a grandmaster. I sort of adapted my English to D4 and play more Queen's pawn openings, and that helped me a lot. But I still play the English a lot. And, again, I, I think someone, it was an international master from England, gave me a great bit of advice, and he said um, when I was young, and he, and he played the English, and he said, you you know, you, you don't need to force tactics. Don't Don't try and force you know the you don't need to go always for your opponent's king tactics occur in chess with any opening it doesn't matter what you play um the idea that some openings are really boring uh even though i I mentioned that earlier it's kind of a bit of a fallacy you're gonna always get tactics and interesting positions no matter what you play and i really think the english is actually extremely flexible opening and in some ways more interesting than e4 e5 uh it's it's top level you look at the amount of Berlin draws that happen. You can't get this in the English. You can't. There's no easy way to take the sting uh, out of, uh, you know, getting a very simplified position. So I think it's a very good opening, the English, and a very good positional opening to give you great foundations moving forward. So, I mean, I think for me, as an, and maybe as an attacking player, playing something like that forced me to learn to play positionally. So it, it maybe helped my overall game even. Yeah. Yeah. And... Yeah, I agree. And and like you say, and this, you know, some of the, I think it was Peter Hein Nielsen, but someone in discussing the the world championship said like E4 is so concrete now that often it's it's E4 that can lead to the the more drawish games. You know, you've got the Petrov and the Berlin to navigate. So that alone, not to mention the Marshall, which even though black, if it goes into the main line is sacrificing a pawn, um, a lot of the games have a tendency to fizzle out, at least at the top level. Um, so yeah, plenty of fertile ground in, in what starts out as a uh, quieter openings. Now you mentioned your dad's, um, um, being sort of a student of, uh, Botvinnik and Alyekin. And as you mentioned in our prior interview, your dad, I believe was like 2100 feet a player just to, to give listeners context. Um, and, uh, Cody Noble wrote in to ask if you have a favorite historical player and why they're your favorite. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's always been the same it's been a towel um it had probably, to be towel, yeah. yeah i mean pro- probably as i've mentioned many times before um towel i uh, was just base sorry that's just me opening a can there sorry um, <laughs> nice. sorry not a can of beer a can of uh just in case people are wondering but it was uh, <laughs> no it was it was it was just towel because he, he he was just um the way he played chess was just from another planet it, it didn't even have a lot of logic to it sometimes it was uh alien like um and watching watching his unsound sacrifices were mesmerizing 
Um, and I don't think there'd be anyone, there was no, not really anyone like Tao, and I don't think there'd be anyone like him in the future even. Um, he's just one of a kind um, and a joy to watch. So, yeah, definitely Tao. Yeah, I, I, I can't remember. I probably have heard you say it, but I was sure that was your answer. <laughs> a safe com- bet, a safe bet, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Cody Noble had one other question, uh, which is what is the most interesting place you've played a tournament and what made it unique? Okay, wow, that's quite interesting. Um, well, I mean, Reykjavik, as we mentioned, is certainly one of those one of the most interesting places I've played. Um, probably, though... India. Um, I've only been to India once, and I, I went to play the Under Twenty One World Championships, uh, representing England at the time. Um, I actually played Fresne, Lauren Fresne, in that tournament, uh-huh. which was quite funny. Um, Stonewall Dutch, I remember it. Um, and I found India just completely again the word alien. It was sort of completely not what not what you could imagine it to be um, in, in many respects, and that was. Uh, a real uh, amazing experience. So I- India was was certainly somewhere. Uh, it was right on the south of India, India and Kerala. Um, a, a real eye opening place to play. Um, but yeah, I mean the, the good thing about being a chess player, uh, you know, is I've had the opportunity to see many places I'd never ever get the chance to see. So I've been very lucky uh, traveling and, and visiting some some great. Great places and some horrible places as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it goes with it goes without saying. And yeah. and aside from Reykjavik, Simon, have you thought about any other tournaments coming up, or is that just going to be like reunion, one-off sort of thing? And then, I, then I think we'll that, see. that's probably enough for a couple of years. You know, um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's also time because you know, you, I, I I'm not strong enough to make money from playing, and I don't think many people are nowadays, uh, unfortunately. So. You know, you get more responsibilities, you get older, more more work-related things. And I, I enjoy my work, as we discussed. So playing is a bit of a luxury. I mean, I would like to – the other tournaments I like playing, the British Championships, because there's always that dream of being British chess champion. And another one in England, the Hastings competition. Uh, it's quite easy staying in England, you know. You don't, and uh, Hastings I, I, I like uh, as well. So if I get the opportunity, maybe maybe those tournaments as well. Cool. Well, it, it would be fun to see you out there. Yeah. And uh, I, I hope to, uh, to make it abroad for a tournament sometime too. But as you say, it's, it's not easy, <laughs> especially when uh, you got kids, kids uh, here at home. Um, yeah. Well, Simon, we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsors. And then when, when we get back, I want to talk a bit about chess openings and some of your courses. Our friends at Chessable.com are constantly dropping new courses to help you work on whatever aspect of your game you're interested in improving. In addition to Grandmaster Simon Williams' latest British Grand Prix attack, we have a new course coming from Super GM Linyar Dominguez in February, Dominate D4 with Dominguez's Semi-Tourage. It's been super trendy at the top level. It's a tough opening to crack. If you want to work on your endgame, there is Endgame Maze 2020, which is a practical workbook with mod games and remember whatever aspect of your game you're working on with chessable you can utilize space repetition to help you remember the openings tactics or end game sequences that you learn from chessable.com 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And we are back. So, Simon, I mean, you've you've become one of Chessable's most prolific authors. Uh, I was checking out your Bishop E2 course. As a Sicilian player, I'm, uh, I'm a little worried that this is going to start showing up all <laughs> over the place. And it's like yet another Sicilian sideline I'm going to have to learn to try to uh, to, to swat aside. But uh, I'm, I'm curious... Um, a, like how that project came to be and B, what else you're working on? I'm sure as soon as one comes out, it's on to the next one for you. Yeah, I mean, that's I mean that's the exciting thing about what I do uh, in a lot of respects. This has always been the way I've worked on chess. So even when I was playing in competitions, you know, as we discussed, trying to get the international master title, getting the grandmaster title, trying to win the British championships, trying to win events, you have to think about the opening and you have to, uh, I was always one of those players who, who who liked not just following everything that people are doing, but trying to go my own way, creating things. And um, with this last course, um, it was it had a bit of an interest in history. I, I was playing for England in the European Team Championships, and I, I was I mentioned this in the course, but I was there in a bar in Serbia with Luke McShane, Mickey Adams, Stuart Conquest. And Stephen Gordon and we were we were discussing the development of the Grand Prix opening, which is a very main line against the Sicilian. And we sort of came to we were thinking, well, the knight on C three, it's often a bad piece that that knight um, because you give away this square in the middle and and this and we you know this this idea Luke suggested of playing this little bishop E two move. I was like, yeah, this is really interesting and also it's kind of an ideal. Um, Dutch, uh, and this is another reason I like it. You get a great Dutch position from the pawn structure a couple of tempo up. You've got the classical attacking ideas. One thing, again, I like doing is I I can't learn everything out there in chess. You know, I like having my eyes looking at different ideas, but to really understand something, I want positions with the same plans or similar plans with the same setup. It halves the kind of thing I, I need to learn. So by playing this this idea as white, I'm effectively playing what I learned with the black pieces. So I'm, I'm saving myself a lot of time. And uh, this came about. And obviously, I you know I would like to say as well, as you mentioned, I, I've been working on these projects with Richard Palliser. And the reason for that is Rich, Richard is an international master from England, is just an incredible, uh, 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 you know, incredible theoretician. He's worked with Gwen Jones, um, with other people. He's an incredibly hard worker. And in my eyes, one of the he works on chess publishing, this great platform. He's one of the best opening guys out there. And having him, you know, been able to throw ideas about, and you must give a lot of the well, nearly all the novelties in this course are what he's found with great computer analysis. Working with him has just taken a lot of pressure off that process and made it more enjoyable. Um because 
you don't you don't want to ever work and feel oh no I've got to get up and do this <laughs> you know which I'm sure most of us have had yeah. especially when you're working in a call center in Brighton <laughs> but you don't you don't really want to have that you want to have all oh, right you know okay well let's let's try to create something let's try to find something and and make something better and that that's that's what we're, we're trying to do now and our ne- our next courses we're working on is uh, um this free h4 idea uh, against um uh, basically the King's Indian Grunfield uh, with wow. D4, sort of a, a newish idea, which is, again, something I've been ex- playing and experimenting with for a decade or so. So, so D- yeah. D4, Knight F6, C4, G6, and then Harry? That's right, then Harry. Okay. Yeah, then Harry. <laughs> right. the, uh, you know, and the thing I would like to say about these as well, these courses, you know, they're probably not, and we realize it's going to sell as much as like if we did something on the Berlin or something or oh, you know, like a main line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh God. It's, it's about the right thing to <laughs> say. Apologies to Sam Shanklin, <laughs> but yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, no it, 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 these courses are great, and uh, but it's nice, you know, we realize they might not be broad as much because they're sidelines, but they're really interesting. And I think they're actually probably much more useful for players than learning what everyone else is learning. Why learn what any, everyone else is learning when you can play something a little bit different and surprise your opponent? And also, I love these ideas myself. They're, they're ideas that I would play and that are quite interesting, you know, very interesting. So that's why we're going for these at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that at the elite level, there's definitely, uh, in in my mind, a bit of a problem with uh, with how strong the engines have become and how that uh, informs opening prep, which of course is most visible at the, the world championship um, when, when it's just hard for white to find an edge and uh, until, until things crack open and, and Nepo goes on tilt, there's, there's a lot of draws, but I actually think at the club level and Chessable of course is helping with this. um, There's, there's more scope for creativity and new lines than, than ever, because it's kind of like, if white's given up on sort of finding a concrete edge and if it doesn't matter for like, you know, me, a 2100 player, whether I'm 0.5 or minus 0.2, it's going to be whoever screws up more is the one who loses. Or if no one screws up, it would be a draw, but that doesn't happen that often. So I actually feel like stuff like your Bishop E2 line and, you know, so many other sidelines, um, there's, there's more room than ever for them at the say, I don't know, below 2300 level, something like that. Uh, I 100% agree. And you could even make a claim at, at every level um, because um, look at Magnus. I mean, we mentioned him. Who, who was his most controversial second? It was uh, Daniil Dubov. And, right. uh, and if you look at Dubov's ideas, and I had a very interesting interview with, with him. He's known as one of the most creative and strongest chess players in the world. And he basically said, well, look, the ideas I come up with in the opening, I work with a computer, and I know that the computer will say these ideas are bad. So, But he, he was actually making an analogy with poker, which I'm sure you, you know very well. It was the, the expectancy of your opponent to be prepared for it. And again, I'm not really into the poker terms much, but he was playing on expectancy that he's playing ideas that if his opponent finds 10 moves correctly in a row, he could even be worse with the white pieces. But he's expecting that you know, his opponent won't find these perfect moves because he's surprising them first by playing a move which is not the best move. So, and this is probably why Magnus Carlsen got him. I think Magnus Carlsen got Duboff because he knew that Duboff would come up with ideas which would probably, in let's say, if they were on a discussion forum on chessboard, people would be like, this is rubbish. The computer thinks it's bad. This is, this is not the best move. But actually, 
these ideas are much more interesting and valid than the best move. They're not expected. They're very hard to refute. Um, they can cause a lot of confusion. And, you know, with this Bishop E2, if we're going back to this opening, this is this is not just a trick line. You know, I think black has a number of ways to be equal, probably like black has in most openings, but it's more of a setup. So it's not it's not going for tricks. You're going for particular setups, which are easier for white to play. And that's another thing I think is key, picking openings, which is easier for you to play the moves rather than your opponent. Because if you're if you can naturally know what you're doing, you don't really have to think as much. Your opponent has to think to equalize. And you know, going back to Bishop E2, that's one example. Going back to free h4, another example, black has to think. You're putting that hard process onto your opponent. It's a mind game after all, and you don't want them to bang out their Berlin theory for 20 moves, get equality anyway. Why why would you want to do that? It makes no sense to me. Um but okay, I mean, you know, I I, I do also think learning main lines is important but it's something i'm sort of I, I i do but it's not something i enjoy as much as playing sidelines which i think is are as equally uh, valid yeah and it's and it's challenging for the as as dubov alluded to at the elite level i mean at the club level to to be ready for for your opponent's specialty when it's like some sideline i mean as you mentioned in reykjavik it's uh nine games in seven days and you get the pairings early so there's like a fighting chance that they, if they're playing a narrow repertoire, you'll be ready for it. But if it's one of these U.S. tournaments where you get the pairings 15 minutes before the round or something, like you know, forget about it. You you'll you'll be lucky to survive. And it's interesting to hear what you said about Dubov because in in that obviously everyone was crediting Magnus's play in the Catalan in the World Championship. Uh, everyone was saying, "Oh, that's got Dubov's fingerprints all over it." But hearing you describe that sort of um evaluation of the expected value of a move and the attempt to keep people off guard there was that there was that game in the Petrov early in the match where Magnus tried to catch him and Nepo drew like fairly easily but then in the press conference Magnus was just very philosophical about like you know we tried to catch him he was ready that's how it goes so you you could definitely see the uh the um the effect that that mindset had on him yeah, I, I I think that's why, uh, you know, Duboff was in the team. And uh, you mentioned the Catalan game. Obviously, that was probably the game Magnus was closest to losing, as, yeah. Jan, as Jan said afterwards. But before, you know, uh, Magnus got to that position, he had he had his clearest winning chance as well, which we, we can't forget. He played one. He got, the opening worked incredibly well for him. But having someone imaginative like Duboff alongside his rocks, like uh, Jan, Guff Stance, you know, Guff and uh, Peter Heiner and these people, I think is a great combination. And, uh, you know, if you're working from home, you know, obviously learning main lines, that's where you've got your Peter Heiner's is so important. But if you can mix that up with some original ideas as well, uh, it, it can work tremendously, you know, having that flexibility and just be willing to not always follow what's in front of you. But why can't I play that move? Ask yourself questions. Don't let the computer do all the answering for you. You know, that's a big mistake. No. Yeah. And, and to bring it back to the Bishop E2 against the, um, the Sicilian line, I watched, I watched your intro video and you mentioned this game uh, of, of your British compatriot, uh, super GM, Luke McShane beating uh, Ivan Cheparinov, who of course has been a 2,700 player and top theoretician in, in his own right. Um, so that's sort of illustrated uh, 
the, the point you're making, but you also mentioned that you thought that Luke in that video, you said that you think he's one of the most talented players of all time. So I was, I just, I just like to hear a little bit more about that. Obviously he was a top prodigy in great Britain, but, but I, but that's a strong endorsement. So I was just curious to hear what, what, what makes you think that? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm probably a bit biased, you know, bound, bound to be. Um, I mean, I would, I would say, you know, people I, I know closely and you've been like a bit amazed, amazed at uh, it's certainly Luke and 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 Mickey Adams you know I, I can't I can't not mention Mickey Adams they're they're actually quite similar players Luke and Mickey but Luke just has this incredible understanding and and incredible ideas for someone who doesn't really do chess full-time and, and Mickey probably the player I, I'm most impressed with I don't really understand his moves sometimes and, and then he's just winning you know he just right. I, he's just like I understand Tao's moves better even yeah. though they're completely mental <laughs> you know, I, you know, Tao goes for your king, even if it costs him a, a rook and a queen. But Mickey just like plays a move, plays a move, plays a move. He's playing like let's say some twenty-seven fifty, plays a move, and he's and he's better. And it's like I don't understand how he did that. So it, it, incredible, incredible, like sort of depth to the moves here playing, which you can't see on the surface. Incredible. It's like that iceberg. You know what's below the surface and. Mickey is is and Luke are, are both players who, who who have that, which is so hard to see, uh, and but quite beautiful as well. Some natural talent, clearly. Yeah, yeah. yeah there, Mickey's got a book coming out soon, and I'm I'm hoping to interview him because he's such a such a legend, and looking forward to the book more importantly. Um, and. Yeah. And hearing you riff on all these great British chess players, um, we might as well hop into a related question from supporter of the podcast, Craig Mallon. Uh, for listeners who aren't familiar, uh, Patreon subscribers of Perpetual Chess can find out the guests and send questions to uh, luminaries such as the Ginger GM. So Craig asks, he says, I'm a big fan of GM Simon Williams. I especially love the infect infectious enthusiasm he brings to his videos. As a British expat now living in the States, my question is, how does Simon view the current state of British chess? Do you see much promising young talent in the British chess scene? Um, I mean, there's clearly talent. Uh, that, that, that I think goes out saying with every chessy <laughs> i mean uh, so uh youngsters in, in in britain um yeah i mean there's there's some great players but um the state of british chess in general um i think it's pretty terrible um as in if you look at uh, you know england were in the 70s 80s i think they came second third in the olympiad but they're one of the strongest chess nations um we were producing a lot of grandmasters even when I was, you know, going back 10 years. And how many grandmasters do we produce? Have we produced England, Britain, shall I say, in the last, uh, in the last 10 years? Well, I can probably, I can certainly name, name them on one hand. I would imagine the amount of grandmasters that Britain has actually had. But if you look at other, other countries, they're producing, they're, they're producing a handful of grandmasters every month. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, you can just judge, you know, judge, uh, how chess in the nation is going. And I mean, I, I, I personally, you know, think there's a, a bit of a, a problem with, uh, uh, I, I don't know, in some, some tournaments and, and some sort of, uh, I don't know, like some people's thinking that, you know, some that elite chess, they, they're kind of against elite chess. And like they started using these tournaments where it's called stars barred. 
So, okay, if you get to a certain grade, you can't play. <laughs> and then there was, there's been big debates on some forums like, why are we funding the English team? Why, why can't we just put it into uh, uh, regional chess? Uh, and I've always thought this is completely crazy. And it's normally by people who don't play a lot of chess, but they're making big, big things about this. And I think you need to support the people at the top because you need to give juniors are coming through something to aspire to. I mean, I know when I was playing, I'd look at the grandmasters, like, I really want to be one of these guys. I love chess. They're going around playing tournaments. And if you're not supporting the players at the top by, you know, funding there to represent England in the Olympiad by giving them good money and stuff like this. Why would anyone want to become a grandmaster? You know, it doesn't make any sense. So I think it, I, I think there's a lot of problems. I mean, I know there's some great things going on in, in British chess. I mean, um, and a lot of changes happen all the time. There's some, you know, are some great individuals. But I, I think actually it's, it's probably um, people away from the federation in general which are doing the big changes like malcolm Payne has been great for chess but he hasn't really got anything to do with federation you know just because he's done the london classic he's he's done tangible things that you can see and um i know again i, I don't mean this about everyone in the british chess federation that's just not the way it is there's some great people there but i just don't see really the development with with younger players over the last 10 years and there's too much too much stupid politics about why are we, you know, this thing about let's not fund the top players. I want people to play, you know, my eight, you know, a group of 80 year olds to play down at the town hall for the next five years instead, you know, stuff like this. But anyway, bit of a rant there, really. Don't know where that came from. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> so, it's, it's, I get what you're saying. It's disappointing. There's so many, so many British chess legends. I mean, the, in yeah. the contemporary scene, but yeah, the, the pipeline, I mean, uh, doesn't, doesn't, at least from the outside looking in, doesn't seem as strong. It doesn't look good. I mean, like you know, all the older chess players are going to die off. You know, that's what happens in life. And do we have a lot of younger players coming through, grandmasters? Well, we, you know, we have some great talent. Like we have Ravi Harrier, we've got uh, Marcus Harley. But I think all of these guys, they've become where they are because of the help from their parents and their own hard work, rather than the federation's hard work um, in general. In general, so it's like you know, we really need to try to get on top of this, and or we're going to lose. We're going to lose. Uh, you know, this strong this chess we have in england i feel yeah and it's hard i mean I, I, we talked about this in our in our first interview five years ago and it sounds like even though the chess world as a whole is thriving thing, things haven't changed that much and i know here in the u.s it's true as well i mean uh the u.s chess federation is a is a non-profit so resources are always going to be uh i don't know if scarce is the right word but there's always going to be uh more more noble things you can fund than there there is money um so it's always an issue but i certainly agree with what you said about like you need to support the top players uh in order for uh the, the up-and-comers to to have something to aspire to um and i, I feel it, like sorry go ahead sorry i just think it tickles down you know if you support the, the players yeah. who have worked all their life and achieved the things that every what every single player would like to achieve if you support those guys, it's gonna it's gonna you know just tickle down through every layer of chess, um, and I think that's so important to keep doing. Yeah, and yeah. I do feel like that's happening on a global scale. With like yeah. part of the reason the like young players are getting better and better is because they see, you know, obviously we wish we wish it were that if you know if you make it to the top one hundred, you can make you know six to seven figures but more realistically it's the top 10 but at least they see okay if i'm if i become elite at this like i'm going to be very very well rewarded for my services but that's on a global scale it helps more if it's on a local scale and that's where if it's 100 instead of 10 there's you know a couple 
like well-paid, respected professionals in, in every country at, at minimum. Um, anyway, one more sort of uh, Great Britain-related listener question. This one is from Jonathan Slater, although it's only tangentially uh, Great Britain-related. He, he asks, he says, uh, can Simon tell us about the Mind Sports Center in London? He said he saw you attempting to teach Alexandra Botez how to drink a flaming Sambuca on YouTube, on YouTube there. Um, yeah, that was actually just that was at Battersea Chess Club, actually. Um, but there's there's two, uh, well, what well, is a couple of great places in in London. There's the Battersea Chess Club, which has a really uh, nice it's a nice chess club where I played uh, Alexander Botez. Great, great fun. Um, yeah, the flaming sambuca was. Uh, <laughs> um, she claimed she'd never done it before, but I'm not sure I believe her. Huh. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not sure what happened. That that night went a bit off off track should we say around that moment <laughs> but it was a lot of fun a uh, very nice person it was lovely uh, meeting her there but then like you say you have this mind sports center now which has just been um well just been taken over by uh, i think it's hammersmith chess club and um this is a great center in london um which has is really it's a quite a big place they have a bar there which is always nice a bit of social you know social things but it also does other things it does other games they have a bridge night they have this kind of thing but they they're trying to build it so they can hopefully have more should we say grandmaster norm tournaments there events going on there uh, and just somewhere you can always go and play a bit of chess and uh, it's quite phenomenal to have anything like that so so well done to them yeah that's great and that's yeah. that's the sort of thing we're talking about that could be Definitely. huge for for the next generation um cool all right well we're gonna take one more break simon and then when we get back we got a couple more questions to get to uh so we will be right back Listeners, our friends at aimchess.com have a fun new feature that I want to tell you about. It is called the Aim Chess Recap. If you're familiar with Spotify Wrapped, it's basically the chess version of that, your chess year in review. They have a new design to make the user experience more fun, and they tell you all kinds of stats from your from your year, the ones you might be used to, like how you do with certain openings, certain colors against who you played the most, how many minutes you played the total year, and then some fun stuff like the total amount of smothered mates you played, the number of en passants taken, uh, all of your missed mate and ones. Okay, maybe that one's not as fun. And if you see something you want to share, you can easily share it on social media. So that's called the Aim Chess Recap. Link is in the show description. It's free to check out. And then if you do decide to subscribe to Aim Chess, use the code PERPETUAL30 to save 30%. All right, let's head back to Perpetual Chess. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we are back. And Simon, so we've got a couple sort of um, stray topics I want to hit that, that, uh, that we haven't come to yet. I've greatly enjoyed this conversation, of course. Um, one of which, of course, is uh, is your new venture, G-Chess, um, which you were nice enough to uh, give me the keys to to take a tour around. I had checked it out even prior to that, but I've been been really enjoying it. Um, but we did have a couple questions um, along the lines, uh, one from the aforementioned Jonathan Slater, um, 
who said he's interested in G-Chess, but he doesn't understand it. So, so he got the sense it could be a powerful tool, but he doesn't completely understand it. Um, and we had a similar question from Jerry Snitzelar that we'll get to in a question. But first of all, could you just talk about like how G-Chess was created and what sort of the vision for it is? Yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, uh, I suppose around a year ago now, um, uh, the business that I run, Ginger GM, uh, joined the Play Magnus Group. Congratulations, really, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Re- really exciting to, um, you know, have this opportunity, which again, if you go back to Reykjavik, you never imagine these things <laughs> yeah, happening. You know? It's like, what the hell? What the hell's going on? <laughs> but uh, that was great. And, you know, about about a year before we did join, um, I, I just had some ideas about some things which I would like to use, which I think would be very useful for other people to use. You know, obviously we had Ginger GM, but I I wanted to create well it was actually i mean every, nearly every idea i've had ben has come from a conversation down a pub which is brilliant <laughs> <laughs> and i think uh, my my friend was joking to me about 10 years ago saying you've got to make you know like chess base is fantastic you've got to make a ginger base just <laughs> for a laugh and uh, we did actually buy gingerbase.com at some point and just thought yeah okay just for a laugh i don't know why I'm probably drunk but then it was funny but then it was like okay well chess base is phenomenal i have to say i use it in tournaments but the the feedback that i've got and that i've sometimes found um it's a bit over complicated in, in the uses of it and at elite level it's indispensable you you need it if you're a grandmaster international master but if you're a 1500 and you want to get very quick access to vast information on a position then you don't want to click 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 you want something immediate that you can use and that you don't have to download a great amount you know you can just switch on your phone bang you get that information it's like right okay so it's like have an idea of trying to make some simplified database of um you could even say the googler chess was was an idea like you know you put a position on a board on your phone and it gives you access to nearly every bit of information you can get on that position and not just computer analysis. And, you know, computer analysis is, is important, but people are going the wrong way by just concentrating on what the computer says. I want to see what a grandmaster, an expert in this position says about it, what he's written, what video, what he's talking about. So that was kind of the idea to try to make a, a Google of Google of chess, an encyclopedia of chess, have, have a, you know, so you can put any position on the board and you get great information on that. And you get it from various sources. So that was that was one idea, and that's how we started coming about with G-Chess, just trying to make it that possibility. Position on the board, you can find stuff in chess publishing. You can find stuff that it, if Magnus Carlsen's played that position. You can find videos on YouTube with our intelligent search on that position. You can find Ginger Gem videos. This is also important. It's like how many people have brought videos in their lifetime, like from Ginger GM and let's say iChess, any video company, they've watched the video on their favorite opening. Let's say, I don't know, I'll just put any opening. And then they play a game, uh, even a blitz game, and they're like, hang on a minute, I did something wrong there. What did I what did I do wrong? I, I can't I can't remember that video. I do it all the time. Right. And we wanted to create something that fixed that problem. So then it kind of developed into this next thing of we wanted to be able to use your blitz games, which we can do now on leechesschess.com, and reference it with there's videos as well as everything else. So when you play a move that has gone away from our suggestion in the video, you will go to that time clip in the video 
and it will say, okay, you've played this mistake in your Blitz game. In the video, here's Simon explaining what you should have played. And you go exactly to that thing. We didn't want to make it overcomplicated. It's like you played a game on Lee Chess on move nine. You've played this move, which wasn't what was recommended in the Ginger Gem video. Here's a recommendation precisely at that point. So we've created that now as well. So you can reference. So if you've got the Ginger Gem collection, you can play chess and have immediate access to how good were you at memorizing those lines. And we're doing that with uh, all these other resources as well. And I would like to say, you know, it's been a bit of a journey. We, we haven't really had, you know, much funding. We did it before, but we have now. We've got a bit more help from Play Magnus. And it's been it's been a sort of adventure where we've made mistakes, no doubt. We, we've, we want feedback. Um, when we first opened, it was maybe, I'll be honest, a little bit early in hindsight. Um, but we're very open to listening to all ideas, how we can improve. And it's an ongoing process. We're now very happy with what we got feel it's incredibly powerful and very useful but we're always trying to improve things and and we're we're, we're bringing some big changes about to make it simpler um for users and that's one thing we kind of forgot i'll be honest it's like when we first did it we had all these great ideas it's like oh yeah that'd be so cool if we could do this do that and we kind of did them all what we forgot it's got to be simple for the user so we're going back to keeping those resources but trying to keep it simple and I suppose, Ben, the two things it's trying to achieve is like that database Google of positions. So you've got unlimited resources to any position, loads of different things to look at, and that way that you can improve from your Blitz games even, which is kind of unheard of. How do you improve from Blitz? Well, you can do it by using GChess now. Um, so that, that was our idea, I suppose, on, you know, for, for how it's come about and a little bit about the developments of it. Yeah, it's definitely cool that you can import your Blitz games and have them on the cloud. And uh, and as I mentioned, I th- the the one I've seen people praise the most on Twitter and and that I find super fun is is the ability to search any position. So that if there's some opening, as Simon says, that you're that you're like, uh, man, I, I I I just don't understand the ideas in this position. Um, you you can search to see if it, if that position, like on move ten or whatever it may be. Has has been discussed on YouTube, and you guys are incorporating it with uh, chessable short and sweet courses, which of course are free as well. So definitely, I'm um, looking forward to to um, to what else develops from it. But but I'm enjoyed checking it out. And and on the topic of suggestions, we have um, another listener question from Jerry Snitzelar. Thanks for supporting the pod, Jerry. Um, and Jerry asks, he says, uh, he, it looks, GChess looks like a wonderful site from what I've seen with, with many features. Recently on Twitter, someone had an opening, opening line and was wondering if there were books covering it. That had me thinking, I know GChess can point people to videos and courses containing lines, but does it have the capability to point people to books as well? Seems like an, it would be a nice feature if it isn't implemented, but I can also see it being a potentially difficult task if there isn't an, an electronic version of the book already. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I think we've basically thought, thought about <laughs> nearly everything chess, how we could get every single bit of chess material in the world relate, you know, a link on G chess. We've tried to think about this and, you know, we've, we've certainly thought about it with electronic books. I mean, at the moment, you know, what you've got, you put a position on a board or a position for your Blitz game and you can link that to chess publishing. So that's 30,000 annotated games by IMs or GMs. And the reason I, I really like that is because that's what I use when I'm playing international competitions. I use chess publishing, um, their material because it's updated every month. So you can do that new in chess, the yearbooks, which again are only annotated by the world's best players and they explain their ideas. You can do that with the positions. 
YouTube. So it's an intelligent search. It will find positions in YouTube. and We're increasing that every day by your favorite author, the Ginger GM library. Uh, you get online games. So the top players have played online, offline games. And again, you, you come to books. We'd love to do that. We'd love to have the opportunity to search books. I mean, it'd be easier for us if it was electronic books and you could get a link straight away to the information. You know, I think that'd be cool because we want to be able to provide that information when you search a position so you can get results rather than being told, oh, you, you can find this in, you know, uh, this book that you can get from this library, which might also be okay, but we want to show you that information kind of immediately when you do the search. So any suggestions, we're open to them. I mean, we've got the chessboard short and sweets as well. We want to get chessboard courses in there at some point. We want everything to be there. Like, like I said, like the Google of chess, but easy to use, but definitely love to hear everyone's feedback because it is as i say ongoing and we just want to make it as good as we can uh, and and we want to we want it to be something that people enjoy using and helps their chess you know that's also key <laughs> yeah well it is i do like the interface so yeah and, and certainly like if it were incorporated with the chessable courses that, that one owns that that would be awesome and and to jerry's question i'm guessing there's probably some intellectual property issues in terms of like you, if you just had it linked to any book, obviously, uh, Ginger G, uh, G Chess under the Play Magnus umbrella. So if nothing else, maybe new in chess books and every man chess yep. books someday could be yeah. included. And then um, well, we, we already link it to, like say, the new in chess yearbooks. So you know, yeah. any, any position will link to one of their 150 yearbook positions. So if you think before G Chess came along, you had 150 yearbooks, you know, just sitting on your shelf. If you wanted to find um, a certain opening, You'd have to go to the contents page of each of those books and then look for that position. It would take you hours. On GChess, you can do it now in a second because the position on the board, it will find the article. So we could do it. I mean, every man is is also part of the Play Magnus group. So we'd like to obviously do it with every man, maybe. That'd be the logical next step. And But it is, of course, there is a problem of intellectual property. We can't just start putting up books we don't own. We've, right. got, to have some deal, we've got to have some deal with them. Uh, otherwise, you know, it just it's, it wouldn't be possible. But we're, we're working on all these things, yeah. Yeah, and hopefully it's it's early days. So definitely yeah. look forward to, to continued improvements. Um, and on the topic of openings, we have one more question, Simon, which is from, or one more listener question, um, which is from Jonathan Evans. He said, he loves your Grandmaster Gambit's chessable course. He's been playing the Elephant Gambit for a number of years with pretty good results. It seems to work pretty well in Blitz and Bullet. What are your thoughts about this opening? And he also wants to know what you think of the Papa Tukalat opening, which is Gambit, which wow. I wasn't familiar wow. with, but it goes up. E4, E6, B3, D5, and then White goes Bishop, B2, leaving okay. the uh, E-pawn hanging. Okay. Not hanging, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, well, I mean, first of all, the elephant gambit, uh, I can sort of recall quite a funny, well, not funny story, but a story. <laughs> I, I mean, it was, um, I don't know, it was the British Championships probably about 10 years ago. Um, and I was with an ex-girlfriend there. And um, we, I, I got basically, I was, in the last round, I was doing very well. So we got to round 11 and, and I was playing David Howell. Who, who some people might know. I've heard of him, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's pretty pretty handy, and he was mm -hmm. pretty handy about 10 years ago as well. He, he was the top seed, and he was, half, I think, half a point ahead of me with the white pieces. So I needed to win with black to win the British Championships. And uh, it was on, like, board one. Big, big game. And, um, you know, I did a bit of prep in the morning, but I had a major... <laughs> major major row with the ex-girlfriend <laughs> <laughs> a massive row and it was like i just couldn't be asked I, I just sort of turned the computer off 
got some fresh air, walked to the game, just straight into the game. And I was like, oh, God, what am I going to play now? And I was still <laughs> a bit angry. So I wheeled out the elephant gambit. So it went <laughs> so it went E4, E5, probably the most important game of my life. Knight F3, and I just went D5, not knowing anything about it at all, just that it was called the elephant gambit. Wheeled it out against the top seed in the most important game of my life. Very interesting game. Nearly nearly had him, but he calculated well and beat me. Um, and, yeah, and after that, I've never played it since. Um, I think it's one of those gambits which I like playing gambits, don't get me wrong. And if you're going to play something like that, which is, at the essence, unsound, I mean, there's a difference between that kind of gambit and some of the ideas I was suggesting earlier, which even if your opponent plays perfectly, you're not going to have a lost position. You, you might be a little bit worse, but okay, you're not going to be lost. I think the problem with the elephant gambit, if your opponent plays perfectly, you're going to have a lost position. You're a pawn down. So you're gambling. You are gambling. And in the long run, it's like, you know, do people who don't know anything and go down the casino, do they make money? No, they don't. They lose because they're gambling. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and you're doing the same thing. You're becoming one of those kind of mugs. And I dare I say it. So it's great fun to play occasionally or to gamble for a bit of a buzz like you do down the casino. But having it as a long term opening, probably not the best idea. Yeah. Well, it also depends on your level. I mean, I think if you're like, of course, yeah, of course. If Maybe you're like, yeah. yeah, if you're like 14, 1500, even I think up to around there, like it's it's probably you have an elevated chance of catching your opponent off guard and uh it's probably not going to cost you the game. And especially as he mentioned in uh, Blitz and Bullet, Bullet. But I got a couple follow-ups on this story, Simon. Okay. Um, so number okay. one, the argument with your girlfriend. You, it, you yeah. couldn't hold it off for 24 hours. You have the most, oh. most important game of your life. Clearly not, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I can't even remember what it was about. It was probably about something completely mean art. You know, it was like right. important. But just, just yeah. escalates and you dig in and yeah, yeah. suddenly you're playing the elephant gambit the next day. That's right. Great fun. <laughs> the same day. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then I'm also, I mean... You you wouldn't be able to speak to this better than I am than I could. I mean, I was really enjoyed when I got to interview David Howell and a big fan of his. But I always think of him as an English player. I didn't know he dabbled in E four much at all. So he, he was he playing a lot of E four in those days, and how surprised were you? I think whenever he's played me, um, he he's always played E four, and I played him with the black pieces like six or seven times. And okay. against, he, he he was very clever with his preparation. He didn't want to play against my Dutch. He probably ah. realized probably realized that I understood the Dutch a lot better than him. I knew the positions. Even if he could maybe get an opening advantage, my understanding of the middle game, I don't think he wanted to do. But he also knew that I would often play the Sicilian. He'd play the C3 Sicilian. And he knew by doing that, he'd get me into a position that I felt uncomfortable in. Because when I played the Sicilian, I wanted a dynamic game. And he would take it into positions he liked playing. So he, he, he was very clever with his opening choice uh, against me, I feel, by playing E4. Um, also, I remember your, 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 the question about B3 uh, against yes. the French, and I, I better just yeah, answer yeah. that. Pa- and Papatico or whatever it's called. I, I had no idea. That sounds like a James Bond villain or something. <laughs> yeah, it really but, does. <laughs> but I had no idea it was called that. But yeah, I think, I think that, that's a totally sound opening. Um, very interesting. I don't know if Black should even take the pawn on E4, but very playable. And also, Ben, you did mention that, you know, for lower-rated players playing these openings, I, I you know, maybe I'm being, I was being a bit harsh and totally enjoy yourself, play gambits. But at some point, if you're going to get better and better, these gambits will stop working 
and don't try to make them work, then it's time to give them up. That's probably the way to do it. You know? Yeah, so, that's, yeah. that's great advice. Yeah, I always say, like, listen to the feedback you're getting from your game. So mm. if, if you're starting yes. to, yeah, <laughs> I mean, if it's not working, don't play it. But if it is working, if, as they say, if, it, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Um, so I, I'm, you know, I could keep you forever, Simon, but, but realistically, I only have a couple more questions. One of which brings it back to what you were to the aforementioned David Howell. Of course, I like many chess citizens of the internet greatly enjoyed, uh, the video, uh, that the stream that Magnus did recently of, uh, playing the Lee chess bullet tournament where he and David and a few others were drinking and listening to music and enjoying themselves. And I'm, I'm curious, um, I know that that was in Norway and you don't live in Norway, but I'm curious if you've had any uh, similar experiences that, that were not streamed. Well, probably, Ben, even with you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's from, true. Yeah, she's that's, thinking about that's it. Not, that's not as exciting, though. <laughs> I mean, do, do, do you literally mean like where I've been... Um, no, well, with... like drinking <laughs> drinking with Magnus. Let's start with that. Drink, drinking with Magnus. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I know it's, it's a very friendly... Uh, the chess was a very friendly place in general because uh, everyone, you know, you, you fight someone in the day at the board, but you get quite stressed out and you want to relieve that pressure. And, you know, most of the, most of the top players know each other. And even, you know, I know a lot of the top players. So with Magnus, yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've shared beers with him, played blitz with him a fair few times. Um, he crushed me, of course. Um, but he's a very nice guy. I mean, really nice guy as as... You know, to actually find people that are not nice is a lot harder in the chess world because yeah. you share you're sharing this love and um, why why you don't need to be an arsehole. You know, you can just right. just enjoy you can just enjoy it. You don't really don't need to be. So it's actually it's a really good environment, chess. And like I say, yeah, I've played Magnus, uh, had some stories with him, um, and yeah, uh, you know, sounds like you don't want to good. share the stories though. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're all good. They're all good. I don't know him that well. I don't know him as yeah. well as David. You know, he, he, you know right. I, I yeah. I mean, I sort of know him a bit, but not hardly as well as David. Yeah, and you've known nice him guy. since you were a little kid. You mentioned in one of your videos showing showing him an opening when he was a kid that that he now plays. It was a, some dodgy gambit, as I recall. Uh, well, I, I think well, I met I met Magnus when he was quite young. It was there, uh, so. You know, the Carol, played, maybe the, uh... it was it was the hillbilly attack. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's the, that the one. So yeah. I was well, I was playing in Oslo, and I was probably about eighteen years old, and there was a young Magnus Carlsen watching watching me play Blitz, and I think he I think he probably asked me. You know, he was very very young. He asked me, "What what's that then?" And I was like, "The hillbilly." <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and um, so so yeah. And then I played him in Galstow in, in Norway once as well, and I played him in a Blitz event in in Reykjavik as well. The same year we, we were there, I played him. I think he. He played there in two thousand and yeah, he was he was there, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I played him in the Blitz event uh, afterwards. So so I, I sort of come across him a bit, not so much anymore. He's he's flown above me, um, <laughs> but <laughs> but he was always nice. He was always a very dedicated, clever, and nice guy. But yeah, nice. I don't know him as well as some other some of the other okay. players. But. Yeah, and the hillbilly is uh, e four c six d four d five or no e four c six bishop c four d five bishop b right. three. That's yeah. right. Yeah, legendary yes. name for an opening. <laughs> <It's amazing. laughs> um, and and the the last topic tangentially related to what we're discussing, Simon, is the 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 famed good night pub in Oslo, a uh, chess themed pub. Now, I've you've mentioned it a few times on Twitter over the years. Uh, do you own? Are you a partner in the Good Night or just a fan? Yeah, I've got I, I've got some small shares um, in it, and it's well, quite a funny story again that um, I was playing in the under. It's always these under twenty one world championships, but I was playing I was playing in Armenia, and um, I, this is like obviously like over twenty years ago now. And uh, a Norwegian chap came up to me there, 
not Magnus, um, my, my friend Tor Bjorn Hansen. And uh, he said he invited me for a drink and um, we may be drunk a little bit too much um, <laughs> at this World Championships, not the most professional approach. Um, and I think we were singing the doors, walking down some road. And he, he, he always said, uh, and I always said, obviously when you're drunk, yeah, one day we will get a pub. And when we get a pub, we'll run a pub. You know, as you do when you're young and you're drunk. You know, it's like, it's like yeah, getting a pub such a great idea. So about, you know, about 20 years later, he, he gave me an email and said, Simon, I've got a pub. Are you still interested? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, why not? That's great. So, so it's like, yeah. And uh, literally 20 years later, he, he said, yeah, I've actually just got involved with this chess pub in Norway. We're looking for people to uh, buy some very small shares in it, very small shares to help, you know, support it. And it's like, sounded like a great idea. And uh, yeah, so that's how it started. Yeah, That's awesome. Yeah, it yeah. looks so, it looks like so much fun whenever, whenever I yeah. see pictures and stuff. And uh, is the business going okay? I mean, if, if a chess pub is going to succeed anywhere, it has to be in Oslo, I would think. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing place. Obviously, COVID has hit hospitality right. quite, quite bad, as in, you know, they, when I was over there last time, they had the Omricon or, you know, virus or sort of hit bad in Norway and that's close, close everything down for a month. But in general, it's doing great. And it's, it's always very busy and really, really nice place to be as well. That's more, you know, that's also important. It's just somewhere I really want to go. And I think every, any chess lover would want to go as well. Lovely, you know, highly recommended, even if I didn't have any interest. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see a, a chess pub in every major city someday. Oh, definitely, <laughs> got to be the goal. Yeah, and definitely. and uh, in Reykjavik, there was—I don't know if it would be officially called a chess pub—but there was a certain pub that a lot of people went to for postmortems. The the name escapes me, but I'm yep. curious if you know—is that still going? I don't think it is. No, I I think that place is not going anymore. Oh, bummer. There, there were there were even talks about a good night in Reykjavik, but we'll, we'll have to see how that goes. Yeah, that would be the that would be the next logical place. I feel like it, it certainly would be. Yeah, I mean Reykjavik, of course, quite famously has the um, most amount of grandmasters per head uh, compared yeah. to any any nationality in the world. So it's another chess loving nation, or at least it used to. I think it still has, but. Um, you know, uh, but it's a chess loving nation. So I wouldn't, I think anything chess related there, obviously Bobby Fisher's um, was ended up there. His grave is there. There's, you know, there's that bookshop where he used to sit, which is, there's loads of history of chess there. So it kind of needs a chess pub, I think. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, next time we chat, Simon, maybe, you know, three, five years down the road, hopefully uh, there'll be some progress on this front. Hopefully. <laughs> All right. Well, Simon, this, this has been great as expected. Always entertaining to talk to you. Um, is there, are there any topics you wanted to hit that, that we haven't discussed yet? No, no. I, I, I'd like to thank you, Ben. Thank you very much. And obviously thank all, all the listeners. I mean, uh, everyone's help buying my courses is greatly appreciated. It, you know, it allows me to do more of the free YouTube videos, the free streams, but you know, it's what, what keeps me going, what I survive on you, you guys enjoying the courses, learning from the courses and, and paying me back as well for that. So thank you so much to everyone uh, and if you haven't brought my course that's also okay just about, you're forgiven you know? yeah <laughs> you're forgiven you're forgiven awesome. <laughs> okay yeah. and obviously people can is twitter the best place to follow you simon along with twitch and youtube yeah yeah get, you can follow me on twitter that's what i use the most so okay excellent and obviously chessable and g chess as well um yeah. all right simon well it's been fun and uh we will we will catch you next time take care thank you very much 
Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Beneficial1 on Twitter, at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, ben at perpetualchesspod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show, going over chess games, answering questions, stuff like that. And you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference. So, But most of all, thanks to everyone for listening, and we will catch you all on the next episode. Podcast Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.